It's another good song this morning. Great truths packed in there. Uh, You can open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4. We live uh, in a time when deep personal relationships are hard to make and difficult to maintain. Obviously, the pandemic has made that more challenging than normal, but it was hard even before the pandemic to really cultivate close, good personal friendships. Social media gives us the veneer of friendship. You can click and make a friend rather easily. But I actually think social media ends up making real friendships that much more difficult. You know, you see someone post something you disagree with, and then the next time you see them in person, you're like, meh, I don't even want to talk to them. (laughs) It makes it that much more challenging to cultivate real and deep relationships. Now, what's what's so interesting is we don't really talk about relationships and friendships in that way that often as being a part of a well-lived life. But if you go back and look at ancient philosophers, I know we don't take our cues from them all the time, but they actually saw close friendships and and deep personal relationships, even outside of marriage, like close, good friends that you have for a long period of time. They saw those sort of relationships as a key to living a good life, a life of of joy and satisfaction. Um, One modern New Testament author who likes to explore some of those ancient philosophers and and bring the Bible to bear on, on ancient philosophy said this about relationships and friendships. Relationships aren't an add-on to life. They make up our life. It's not something extra that you might be good to sprinkle here in here or there, but you know, whether you have friends or not, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. That's not the case at all. Relationships are a significant part of life. We find a lot of joy and satisfaction in good and healthy, close friendships. One of the joys of a good friendship, one that that you have had for a long time, someone that you have spent a lot of time with, is knowing how that person is going to act or react in a given situation. I mean, there's something just delightful about nailing a person that you've known for a long time and knowing, I know what they're going to do in response to this circumstance. It's just fun to see their idiosyncrasies, their character qualities, maybe their virtues play themselves out in daily life. I had an interaction this week with a friend of mine who was in my wedding and was probably my best friend in college and and in grad school. And uh, I have not seen him in a number of years. And we were texting this week because I'm going to get to see him tomorrow. We're going to get together for the first time in years. And we were texting and... I, it just he's so funny and just brought great delight because he, he still is the same in a lot of ways. And you, there's just that joy in knowing that he's going to be funny in these ways and act in these ways. And that close friendship is still there. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, to have that. Certainly, if you've been married a long time, there are those sort of interactions with your spouse that bring great joy um, and, and life Um, and vitality to to your relationship. Um, But relationships and friendships are one of the great joys of life. Now, to bring that over from interpersonal human relationships into our relationship with God, the book of Exodus is 
going to acquaint us with God week after week to the point where I think you could say that we are building a friendship with God through this book. And I don't think that's trivializing what's happening as we're studying this book. I mean, Moses is literally called the friend of God. And he's called the friend of God because he had that sort of close personal relationship with God where he knew how he would act and he knew what he was like and he had spent time with him and there was joy in that relationship. And what I'm saying to you this morning is as we slowly take this book of Exodus piece by piece, week by week, I think we are doing the same sort of thing. We are building a relationship with the Lord where we come to know him and where we see him in action and we understand what he is like and we watch him put his character and attributes on display. And then we, we derive joy and satisfaction from having a relationship with him that is built on the truth of this book. So I think this morning, as we get into chapter 4, we're going to read a story about Moses and his return to Egypt. But this story is not just about Moses. I mean, this story, like all the other stories in this book, is going to reveal God to us. We're going to get to know God better because of these texts that we're going to read this morning about Moses's move from Midian to Egypt. I mean, you can think of it this way. You and I this morning are walking into a room and we're sitting down at a table with the Lord and we're getting to know him better through these passages of scripture. And so in this text, Exodus 4 verses 18 through 31, here's how we're going to do this and get to know the Lord this morning. We're going to see four elements of the coming exodus, of God's great deliverance, and these elements put God's character, his delivering hand, his salvation, his redemption on display for us. Until we can know him better as a saving and redeeming and rescuing God because of what we're going to see this morning. Now, you'll notice in this, it says that there are elements of the coming exodus, Israel's deliverance from Egypt. This passage sort of foreshadows and anticipates what's going to happen in the Exodus. And so the same themes that you're going to see here will once again play themselves out in Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The same sort of things happen because the same God is overseeing all of this by his grace and his sovereign hand. And so the first element of the coming exodus really teaches us about our response to this God who will be put on display. This first element you can see there is faith-driven obedience. All throughout chapters 3 and 4, which is where we've been the last couple weeks, we've seen a conversation between Moses and between the Lord. And throughout that conversation, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4, verse 17, throughout that conversation, God has been the one who has been giving instructions. And he's been encouraging Moses. I mean, Moses has been asking questions, but God has been saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here are my plans. Here's how I'm going to act and work this out. So God has been communicating to Moses his word, his promises. And if you look back, even in chapter 4 and verse 12, just look up a few verses there, we find out in verse 12 that God actually plans to work and to accomplish his purposes by his word, by what he says. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, go, he's speaking to Moses, and I will be with your mouth 
and teach you what you shall speak. And so God is going to work by his word. And so what should our response be to God's word? When he speaks, when he reveals himself, what is our response? It's right here on the screen. Faith-driven obedience. I mean, the last thing we saw of Moses was verse 13 of chapter 4, right? So here's what we find of Moses. But he said, Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses is trying to wiggle out of this whole deliverer thing. He doesn't want to go back to Egypt. And so he's trying to get out of it. And God actually gets angry with him. And then we don't read anything else about Moses' response. And so the question is, how does Moses respond? What is he going to do in response to what God has said throughout chapters 3 and chapter 4. Look at verse 18 to begin to find out. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, this is a very condensed version of this conversation. There was probably a lot more that was said between Moses and Jethro. We don't know how much. We don't know what he explained to him, but... We just get a snippet here. But it's quite clear in this passage that Moses is going to leave with Jethro's blessing. I mean, you see that at the end of verse 18. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And so he's going to leave with Jethro's blessing. And it's quite clear that Moses actually plans on leaving. Look at verse 19. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, I think what God is doing here is he's telling Moses that things have changed and I am beginning to work in Egypt. Now, obviously, he, Moses is going to be protected. God is, is not going to send him back into Egypt just to have him killed by Pharaoh, who was still looking for him probably after what had happened earlier in Egypt. But the point here is that God's deliverance is starting to unfold. God is beginning to act, and he wants Moses to understand that. And so he wants him to head back to Egypt, which is all a part of God's plan. And so Moses packs up his family, and he heads out. Look at verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. He takes two things with him, his family which indicates this is not a temporary trip. He's taking his family with him. He plans on going and staying. He's going to identify with the Israelites. He's going to become a part of the nation of Israel. He's taking his family. And notice what else he takes with him. The staff of God. Go back to verse 17. What did God tell Moses to take with him? Verse 17. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God tells him to take it with him. God tells him to go back to Egypt. And what does Moses do? He takes it with him. He goes back to Egypt. And he's going to use this staff in reliance on God's power. Now, here's the point of all of this, right? Moses has had his doubts about this whole thing. I mean, he's asked a bunch of questions. He tried to wiggle out of this. So he's had his doubts. And he's clearly not perfect, as you'll see in a few minutes. He's a sinner, just like everybody else. But he does respond here to God's words with obedience. I mean, it's a very simple concept in a lot of ways to understand, but it's quite hard to do. 
He hears what God says, he believes what God says, and he acts on what God says. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. We can tell here that Moses believes God because we see Moses act on what God has said. On the flip side, if Moses were to say, yeah, God's totally going to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, and he's going to use me to do it, and then he were to stay in Midian, we would say, you don't really believe what God has said because you're not acting on it. And that's the lesson that is important for you and I to understand here. Belief results in action. We can say all we want that we believe God's word, that we trust God's word, that this is inerrant, it's without error, it's our final authority, that it's our guide for life. We can say all we want to verbally about this book, but our faith does not demonstrate itself as real until we act on it, until we live as if this book is true and right. You'll see this throughout the book of Exodus. The Israelites will hear what God has to say. They will receive his word to them, and then they will have to respond in obedience. And so I would ask you this morning, and ask myself this too, In what areas do I say that I believe God? Do I claim faith in his word? And then I turn around and I don't act on it. I say I trust this, but really when it comes down to my actions and to my lifestyle, it's clear that I don't really trust God's word because I don't actually live it out. And so that's the lesson that is drawn here from verses 18 to 20. And that brings us to our second element of the coming exodus. First of all, we respond to God's word in faith-driven obedience to who God is. And the second part of this, the second element of the coming exodus, something you will see throughout this book, is God's sovereign choice. God is absolutely sovereign. And that is a key feature of the exodus account. And I would say to you this morning, You and I cannot really know God. We cannot really have a friendship with him. We cannot really relate to him unless we know him as the almighty, sovereign king of the universe. That is who he is. And that is how we relate to him. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Now, if you will remember, God gave Moses some signs. Remember the snake, the leprosy, the Nile River turning into blood. God gave Moses some signs, but who was he to do those signs before? The Israelites. Why? So that they would believe. The signs were to foster belief in God. The Israelites were to know that God would be their deliverer based on those signs. Now God is telling Moses, and we're finding out, and he's probably finding out here too, that he's not only going to do these signs before the Israelites, now he's going to do them before Pharaoh. This is an interesting turn of events. 
These signs were supposed to foster belief in Israel, so are they supposed to have the same purpose for Pharaoh? Is he going to believe and trust in the Lord? Why do the signs before Pharaoh? We'll look at the rest of verse 21. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So instead of helping Pharaoh to believe in God, these signs that Moses does are actually going to harden his heart. And they're going to increase his unbelief. Now, this is exactly how Jesus in the New Testament talks about parables. This has been several years since we've studied this, but Mark chapter 4 In the parable of the soils, remember this? Jesus talks about the sower going out and casting seed, and that seed falls on these different types of soil. And the disciples don't understand the parable, and so they come back to Jesus, and they're like, what's going on? We don't get it. And Jesus says this to them in Mark 4. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so what Jesus is saying here is when these parables are spoken, there are two responses to the parables. The sunlight shines with great heat and it hardens the clay and melts the wax. It's the same parable, it's the same sunlight, but there are two different responses, and they're both responses that the Lord desires. And that's what he's saying about Pharaoh here. The Israelites will see these signs and they will believe, but Pharaoh will see these signs and he will be like the clay that is hardened. And God will use these signs to harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. Now, this is, this is hard stuff. This is a hard pill to swallow, to hear that the Lord would use these signs to harden Pharaoh's heart and for him to continue in his unbelief. And when you hear that, we understand we're stepping up to the intersection here between God's sovereign will and man's responsibility. And those two things intersect here. And so what you've got is, and you'll see this throughout the book of Exodus, you've got a a man, Pharaoh, who is a sinful man, but who is responsible for his choices. He is making real choices. He is deciding out of the sinful worship of idols of his heart and his sinful nature to make genuine, real choices. And at the same time, you also find out that his rejection of the Lord and his stubbornness will play a role in God's redemption of Israel. That God will actually use these signs to increase his hardness of heart. And so as you read the Exodus story, you'll find, I believe it's 10 and 10, 10 times where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and 10 times where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And all of that is a part of God's plan. Why does God do this with Pharaoh? Well, he actually tells us. He tells Moses why in Exodus 9. Look at this. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. I mean, God's just saying, look, I just snap my fingers and you're done. But that's not what he has done. He's given plagues after plagues after plagues, and Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And this is why, the last line of this. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Apostle Paul comments on this as well in Romans chapter 9. This exact circumstance, here's what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Ultimately, God raises up Pharaoh, puts him in the position he's in, and hardens his heart in order to put God's power and glory on display in the redemption of the Israelites. But here's where this becomes an unbelievable truth for you and I, right? I mean, this seems harsh. This seems hard to hear. But let's flip this on the other side now when we're thinking about God's sovereign choice. Because God rejects Pharaoh here for his purposes, but at the same time, he selects Israel for his purposes, And so there's the the negative, but there's also the positive here. And for you and I, this is unbelievable news that we who have been born into sin and who have rejected God from the time we were young and have natures that are dead in our sins and are corrupt and are running away from God and have nothing good to bring to the table before him, spiritually speaking, we who have been born into that situation, somehow, in some way, God in his sovereign mercy chooses to have us hear the gospel. And he calls us to himself and gives new life in our hearts. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you have come to Christ and received salvation from him, it is not because of your goodness or because of your wisdom or because of my great intellect. It's only because he has decided to have mercy on you. And he has decided to have grace on you. And that's exactly what we see here regarding Israel in verses 22 and 23. Look there with me. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God chose Israel as his firstborn son, not because they were so great and they were so wonderful and they were particularly smart and good looking. That's not why he chose them. He tells us why he chose them in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, or set apart to God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose them because he decided to set his love and affection on them and for his own purposes. And his purposes by his grace include having Israel be his firstborn son. Now, what is he getting at there when he says that they are his firstborn son? This phrase connects Israel to God's mission to redeem all of humanity from sin. If you will remember in the book of Genesis, Adam is called God's son. And then Israel receives this designation as God's son. And then later in the Old Testament, the Davidic kings receive this designation as God's son. He will be a son to me. And so what this tells us is there is this mission and responsibility that God passes from Adam through Noah to Abraham to the children of Israel to the Davidic kings. And of course, none of them succeed ultimately in accomplishing this mission. But here God chooses them to be his representatives and to accomplish his mission and begin his mission in redeeming humanity from sin through the nation of Israel. He's going to work his salvation through them. But he's not going to work his salvation through them until he has saved them from death. Look at verse 23. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. And I say to you, to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, if you're familiar with Exodus, this story, you know that what God is referring to here is the 10th plague, right? I mean, this is the plague that happens on the night of Passover, and this is the plague where the firstborn sons of Egypt are killed, and there is the threat of death on them. This plague that God is referring to here is the culmination of all of the plagues, When we talk about Passover or think about the plagues, we don't focus on the frogs or or the, the lice, right, or the hail. I mean, those are important, and there's a reason that those happen, but all of those plagues, in fact, everything from this point on in the book of Exodus is leading toward the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. It's all climaxing and culminating in that night and in what happens there. And so this is framing the whole story up so that as we read it, we're headed toward this moment and this threat of death that is to come to Egypt. Now what's amazing, and you have to keep in mind about this threat of death to the firstborn sons of Egypt, is that Israel was not free from this threat. They were included in this threat. They were not free from it simply because they were Israelites. Many of the other plagues they were excluded from. But this threat of death would have included them unless they did this. Exodus 12. 
Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The only thing that would spare the Israelites from this threat of death on the Egyptian firstborn sons would be the blood of the Passover lamb applied to their doorposts. And so, This helps us to understand this entire book, this entire story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt was not a political deliverance. It's not how we summarize this. This is not a liberation from political oppression. This is salvation from the threat of death. That's how God describes it here. And the only way for the Israelite Firstborns to be delivered from the threat of death was through a blood sacrifice on their behalf. One author put it this way, and I thought this was very helpful. Through the Passover ceremony, every Israelite household in the land of Egypt was reenacting the spectacle of the nation's redemption. In this way, the nation's epic deliverance was itself reduced theologically to a singular household drama, the sparing of the firstborn son. I mean, just to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite family, understanding that your firstborn son would die tonight if he stepped outside or if you did not put the blood on the doorposts. The threat of death was very, very real. And so each individual Israelite household understood that this was a microcosm of what God was doing for his firstborn son, for the entire nation in delivering them. I'll keep reading. That is, the Israelite firstborn son not only represented the sparing of his household, but he represented the redemption of Israel as God's firstborn son. For thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. So God tells Moses this in verses 21 to 23 to frame up all the events of the Exodus. And they all take place according to his sovereign hand and in order to rescue his chosen people, his son, from the threat of death. And they are rescued by the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that is shed on their behalf. Now, what's so amazing about this is that you read about this deliverance here by blood sacrifice, and then you move to the New Testament. And as God's people, we are rescued from enslavement to sin and from the threat of eternal death, not by the death of an animal and not by the death of a lamb on our behalf. We are rescued from the threat of death and from enslavement to sin and from judgment, God's judgment, by the bloody death of his son. He redeems his firstborn son here and then he offers his firstborn son for us on the cross. And he so loved the world that he gave his firstborn son 
It's only begotten so that you and I could be freed from sin and from death and brought into a relationship with him. That is the extent of his love for us so that we could have life. Now Moses hears this in verses 21 to 23. And he's about to find out just how serious this threat of death is. God is not joking around with this. He'll follow through on it. And this is the next little story that we'll get to here. This is our third element of the coming exodus. Deliverance from death by substitutionary blood. We have talked about this, but now we're going to see it work itself out in Moses' life in this little story. Now, admittedly, this is a weird story. This is bizarre. (laughs) So if you've never read this one before, buckle up, right? This is odd when we come to it. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place, remember they're journeying from Midian to Egypt. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This seems like a change. What's going on here? God's deliverer, the guy he's just had a huge conversation with about trusting him and going to deliver his people out of Egypt. He's going to give him this staff to do miracles and take it along with him and all of that stuff. He and his family are doing exactly what God told them to do. They're journeying along. They stop for the night. And all of a sudden, however God does this, he shows up to try to kill Moses. What is happening? Well, we find out by what Moses' wife does here. Verses 25 and 26. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom or a relative of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A relative of blood because of the circumcision. Now, let me just say, this is one of the glories of expository preaching as you get to deal with texts like this and talk about them because no one would ever go to this passage if we were not working through the entire book of Exodus. So that's just a side note there. But anyway, to understand what is happening in this bizarre little story here and why it's important, we need to remember what circumcision was. Circumcision was a sign that was given by God to Abraham in Genesis 15 or in Genesis 17. And this sign was to confirm God's covenant with Abraham. And so all of his descendants, the males, were to be circumcised as a sign and to show that they were participating in the covenant. And the parents were to circumcise their sons to show that they believed God and they they wanted to be a part of this covenant and that they were a part of this covenant. Circumcision had a positive and a, a negative lesson or reality to it. And I'll let... This author explained it, symbolizing the removal of defilement. Circumcision functions somewhat similarly to the removal of leaven from one's house, except that it requires the shedding of blood. Positively, circumcision functions to seal a new identity. As Abraham's circumcision came with his name change, or Abram's name change to Abraham. Okay, so there's a positive and a negative element to this. So negatively, it shows that you are removed from the world, that you are set apart, that you are free from defilement. It's a part of God's covenant people. 
And positively, it shows that you have a new identity, that you have been brought into this covenant family. And you are to be set apart in your lifestyle and in your holiness for the Lord. And so circumcision shows that you are a member, a covenant member of God's people. You've been separated from the world, removed from the world, and placed into God's covenant people. Now, later in the book of Exodus, interestingly enough, circumcision is connected to Passover. They go hand in hand. The Israelites were not to participate in Passover unless they were circumcised. Both of these go together. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And so these are connected, the Passover and circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And it's clear from this passage back in Exodus 4, our weird little story here, it's clear from this passage that Moses' son had not been circumcised. Which doesn't sound like a big deal, maybe, but it's a huge deal as a part of God's covenant people. And so how could Moses lead God's people to be redeemed from slavery and to be a new people with a new identity God's special covenant people, how could he lead them and institute the Passover when he had not yet obeyed God and circumcised his own son? He hadn't dealt with God's command. And so here, Moses, the deliverer, the one who is going to be God's mouthpiece, even he is accountable to God for his sin and for his failure to act. And so he experiences the threat of death here, just like all of the Israelite firstborns will later on. So how is death averted from Moses? I mean, we obviously read about Moses quite a bit later on, so he doesn't die here. So how is death averted? God doesn't just leave him alone. I want you to notice in verse 25, in this very graphic little verse, never shows up on anyone's life verse list here, but I want you to read and look in verse 25. It says, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. That word, touched, is only used one other time in Exodus 1 through 15. And it's in the passage that we read earlier today that talks about the Israelites putting or touching the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. It's the same word that is used. In both instances. And so it ties together what happens here as a sort of Passover event for Moses that will then later happen to the Israelites. And you can see twice in this passage here, his wife Zipporah knows what's going on because of the phrase that she uses. She says a relative of blood. And then she says it again in verse 26, or or Moses draws attention to it. She said, a relative or a bridegroom of blood. The emphasis is on the blood because of this. Let me 
let this author explain it to you. Blood is mentioned specifically because in order to be delivered from death, Moses had to be touched by the blood of a sacrifice and thereby identified with it. It was not a full sacrifice, of course. Nevertheless, that small portion of circumcised skin represented Gershom's entire person offered in Moses' place. Moses was saved from God's wrath by the shed blood of a substitute. Now, our whole purpose this morning in this text is to understand God better. So what does this story tell us about God's character? It tells us a couple of key things. One is that this is a God of precise justice. He does not overlook sin. He's not casual about it. Even with his deliverer, there is the threat of death over sin. He is an enacting God when it comes to justice. But this also tells us that he is a God of unmerited grace. And he provides a substitute, a blood sacrifice and a blood substitute to atone for sin, to remove the threat of death from his people. In his mercy, he provides a substitute. I mean, Romans 6.23 couldn't be clearer. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is through our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his shed blood for us on our behalf that we receive the gift of life. That we are delivered from death and that it is averted and God's justice, as we sang this morning, is satisfied. The wrong is made right here. Moses is freed from death. And when this deliverance happens for Israel and the promise of this deliverance is told to them, they have a very specific reaction to it. And this is where we'll end this morning. Faith-fueled worship is the fourth element of the coming Exodus. Verses 27 to 31. So this entire passage has been the movement from Midian to Egypt And here in verse 27, you find Moses and Aaron meeting at Mount Horeb on the way. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And so they meet here, they talk, Aaron's on board, and now the final journey to Egypt happens and Moses returns there with Aaron. Now, when he returns, he, we know from previous conversations that he's pretty skeptical about Israel's response, right? He doesn't expect them to believe, to come in faith. But that's not exactly what happens. Look at verses 29 to 31. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. They respond in two ways here. And these two ways are linked. They believe God. They hear what Moses says. They see the signs and they believe him. They say, this is true. This is going to happen. And then they worship him. Salvation has as its end goal, redemption has as its end goal, worship. The goal is not just to get a bunch of people to cross the threshold into heaven, to give you your ticket. 
so that you get there and you're like, sweet, all right, I'm good now. Although, I do think there will be that element to it, right? When we wake up in heaven, it's like, yes. But that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is for us to be redeemed, bought back from slavery so that we come to worship the Lord. The goal is to create worshipers of God. And worship always happens in response to God's revelation of himself. He tells us about himself. He reveals himself to us. And then the appropriate, proper response from you and I is worship. It's adoration of him. It's to see his character and say, oh my goodness, I am loving who you are. You are worthy. It's to praise him and worship him for his character. And worship is not limited to a couple of songs on Sunday morning. It includes those. But it extends out into every area of life. Where all of life is offered to God as a living sacrifice. Where we believe his word, we obey his word, and we respond to his word with worship. In every area of life. And so I would ask you this morning... Are you responding to God's gift of salvation, to the sacrifice of his son on your behalf for your redemption on a regular basis? Are you responding to that with worship and adoration of him for all that he has done? Not just by singing a couple of songs on Sunday morning, but by an entire life devoted to him, set apart to him and given to him because he's worthy of it because of the God that he is. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for the redemption that we have in Christ. We're thankful that your character is put on display for us in this book. And we pray that you would help us to know you, that we would submit to your word, that we would believe your word, and that it would all result in our adoration of you and our worship of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.